Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode seven of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah Dimio, here to bring you everything you ever wanted to know in the career of the legend Jack Nicholson. Last week, we talked about a double project that Jack, along with director Monty Hellman, banged out over a total of six weeks in the Utah desert, financed by none other than Roger Corman. But the shooting and ride in the whirlwind were not the only acting jobs that Jack got in 1966. Now, those of us who are lifelong followers of Jack probably already know this, but if you're just starting to be introduced to Jack's career, learning about the early works, the lesser known projects, you might not have known about a couple of TV appearances Jack made around the mid to late 60s. At that time, one of, if not the, most popular shows on television was The Andy Griffith Show. Jack made two appearances on The Andy Griffith Show. The first in an episode titled Opie Finds a Baby, which aired November 21st, 1966. In the episode, as the title suggests, Opie, played by a young Ron Howard, and his friend Arnold find an abandoned baby on the courthouse steps. Jack plays the baby's father, and according to IMDb, the character's name is Mr. Garland. In the last few minutes of the episode, he and his wife, Mrs. Garland, played by actress Janie Kelly, rush over to the courthouse to get their baby back, grief-stricken over their mistake. You mean this is where you left him? Well, I was driving around here this morning. I was desperate, I guess, after the fight. All right, okay, I blew my top. I'm sorry, but let's just hope that they took care of him, all right? Are you the sheriff? That's right. Look, my wife made a terrible mistake. We left our baby outside your door earlier this morning, and we'd like to get him back. A baby? Yes, you found him, didn't you? No, I didn't find a baby. I thought you said... I found him. Where is he? Where is he? What are you talking about, Opie? Well, I found him this morning when Arnold and I were going fishing. That's what I wanted to tell you, Paul. We've been trying to find him a home. Well, son, where is he? My friend Arnold's got him. He's okay. Why didn't you bring him to me? Well, I thought they might send him to a bad home. I'll go get him. I'll go with you. You stay here. Go get the baby And, of course, the baby is safely returned to the parents. And if it ever happens again, welfare department. Believe me, it'll never happen again. Never. It better not. Thanks, boys. That's okay. He already had his one o'clock feeding. (laughs) Thanks again, all of you. That was Jack's first appearance on The Andy Griffith Show, and I'll share with you a clip from his second appearance in a few minutes. Now, we head on into 1967. By this point, Jack is still a few years away from his big break, but he's got a wide-ranging resume. Actor, writer, producer. Now, according to what I read, Jack's marriage to Sandra Knight lasted from 1962 to 1968, and they were separated two years prior to the divorce, so that would mean that by 1966 they are separated. And I'm also seeing a quote here 
where Jack had once lamented, quote, I didn't see enough of my eldest daughter because I was trying to make a career, end quote. So I take that to mean that really it was around this time, the mid-60s on, when it was full steam ahead for Jack, trying to carve out this career for himself. When you're a struggling actor, you'll take any job you can get. So a guest spot on a show as big as the Andy Griffith show, that's a very big deal. But it seems funny to look back on it now because for the past 50 years of his career, Jack has been notorious for never making TV appearances. So Jack's first feature film appearance of 1967 would be in The St. Valentine's Day Massacre, directed and produced by Roger Corman, written by Howard Brown, distributed by 20th Century Fox. This is an uncredited role for Jack. His character's name is billed as Gino, one of Al Capone's hitmen. I have to say that this would be the smallest of bit parts out of any feature that Jack has ever been in. Trust me, this is the definition of blink and you'll miss it. The film stars Jason Robards as Al Capone, George Segal as Peter Gusenberg, Ralph Meeker as Bugs Moran, and in a featured role, Bruce Dern as Johnny May. Bruce Dern would go on to have roles in several films alongside Jack, which we'll talk about as we get into future episodes. And here was something interesting that I read in the credits, but for the life of me, where this character was in the film, I could not find. Joseph Turkle as Jake Guzik. Joseph Turkle is often credited as Joe Turkle. Do you all know who that is? That's Lloyd the bartender from The Shining. And believe me, I triple checked, I quadruple checked, I looked online on IMDb, everywhere I could find to make sure that this is in fact that Joe Turkle, just in case there might be someone with the same name. But no, it all comes back to one guy. But his part has to be another blink and you'll miss it part because as I was watching the film, I was searching, searching for Jack and for Joe Turkle. So if anyone out there familiar with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre can help me, tell me if you noticed where the character of Jake Guzik comes in. I must have missed something because I was not able to find him. I would really love to see where Lloyd the bartender is in this movie because I had no idea that he and Jack had any other mutual credits outside of The Shining. The movie opens on the day of the massacre, February 14, 1929, in Chicago. We have an overhead shot of a city street. It's snowing outside. The film is narrated by voice actor Paul Fries. February 14, 1929. The year of the Black Bottom, six-day bicycle races, flagpole sitting, and the first flight from Paris to New York. Mickey Mouse makes his screen debut, and Herbert Hoover is inaugurated as the 31st president with the words, We in America today are nearer to the final triumph over poverty than ever before in any land. Six months later, the New York stock market will crash and bring about the greatest depression in world history. In the city of Chicago, the time is 10.25 a.m. The temperature, 18 above zero. 
Jason Robards has a fantastic first scene that takes place in a boardroom with the rest of his associates, where he establishes the character of Al Capone. But keep in mind, while this is an account of real-life events, this is a fictionalized version of Al Capone. Now, obviously, Jason Robards is a talented actor, and I thought he did a great portrayal of a fictional character. But the real-life Al Capone was a large, heavy-set man. Jason Robards was thin and fit, and I personally wouldn't think was as physically intimidating as the real Al Capone was. I really enjoyed seeing a young George Seagal as Peter Gusenberg. He's in the first full scene where he bullies a bartender down in a hidden spot, because don't forget, this is during Prohibition, where he takes a sip of beer and spits it right into the bartender's face. He had the role of the cocky, wise guy, amoral gangster down pat. And this really made it entertaining, as we have the buildup to these rivaling gangs planning to nail each other, as they call it. And it speaks to how much Roger Corman's projects have evolved to this point. Remember back when I reviewed The Terror from 1963? I said, pay attention to the story, because I felt like the production was lacking. Well, when I was watching St. Valentine's Day Massacre, I said to myself, now this is good production. And I knew, I knew that Corman would be able to do more with a bigger budget. This film was given a budget of a little more than $2 million. And with that, they delivered on it. Now, as I was watching, though, I did start to get a little nervous that I wouldn't be able to find Jack in the movie. But I did. We first spot our man one hour and four minutes into the movie, getting out of the car in the garage where the massacre would take place. And I had to be sure. So I replayed that one moment three times so I'd be certain that that was Jack. The next time we see him is at the hour and 22 minute mark as the rest of the gang arrives to carry out the massacre. And uh, this is going to sound funny. I really must be a longtime Jack Nicholson fan because he was facing away from the camera at that time. So you could really just see the side of his face and his back. I recognized his ear. Yeah, I recognized his ear. And then when the camera switched to a different shot on the other side, where we could see his whole face, sure enough, that was our man Jack, or Gino, as his character is called. This was an impressive film from start to finish. It had a steady buildup, telling us the events that unfolded leading up to an outcome that we already knew. I liked the choices that the director made, with still a relatively low budget of $2 million, but more than what Corman had been working with on his previous projects. The film was released on June 30th, 1967, and in many ways, this is the first movie of its kind. Prior to this, there were no features depicting the story of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Roger Corman had said he wanted to make a film about gangsterism, but he wanted to do it honestly. He wanted it to be authentic, not a romanticized story. So while the film was not a huge commercial success, it definitely stands the test of time. 
And here's an interesting piece of trivia. Early in the film, there's a full scene where a shootout unfolds in a cafe where Al Capone is a patron. That same shootout scene would be used again in the 1975 movie Capone. So while you probably never heard of this one, the film has a lasting legacy. I want you to check out this movie for yourself. You can buy or rent 1967's The St. Valentine's Day Massacre on YouTube. And you can also find the full movie for free on YouTube. I don't necessarily recommend the free version as the quality is not the best. Or you can also rent or buy the full movie on Amazon Prime Video. Now, as we move on to Jack's next projects of 1967, what do you say we head back to Mayberry? Jack's second appearance on The Andy Griffith Show was in an episode titled Aunt B the Juror, which aired October 23rd of that year. In the episode, Aunt B is selected for jury duty. Jack plays a different character from his first appearance. This character is named Marvin Jenkins, and he's on trial for a suspected theft. Well, I was watching a movie on TV, and the set went out on me. It was about nine o'clock. I figured Bryce's was still open, so I'd take the set down there, have it repaired, and get it back by morning. Go on. When I got down there, the front door was locked. I saw a light around the back, so I went around the alley, and the back door was open. I figured somebody was in there, so I took the set and went in. Wasn't nobody there. Go on. Well, I was coming out of the place, and that's when Charles Keyes called out to me. I figured this has got to look bad me coming out with the set. So I, I beat it. Your witness. And naturally, as he's giving this testimony, we have Aunt B sitting in the jury box, listening intently, and Andy with Opie right next to him, seated over in the gallery. And these would be Jack's two Andy Griffith show appearances over the course of a year. How about that? Now, making a bit of a jump here, we go from The Andy Griffith Show to Jack's next project of 1967, Hell's Angels on Wheels, which was released on December 1st. This film was directed by Richard Rush, and if you remember, Richard Rush wrote and directed 1960's Too Soon to Love, which we talked about in episode two. So this would be his second time directing Jack in a film. Produced by Joe Solomon, Written by R. Wright Campbell, the production company was Fanfare Films and distributed by U.S. Films. Hell's Angels on Wheels, along with some other projects that Jack had going on at the time, would be among the first of the counterculture films that he would be a part of. Let's think about the years that we're entering into now. It's getting to be the late 60s. We're seeing a lot of anti-establishment attitudes in our society. We're seeing the civil rights movement, women's liberation, challenging authority, drug use, and it's making its way into pop culture. Jack plays a character named Poet, okay? The movie also stars Adam Rourke as Buddy, the leader of the Angels, and Sabrina Scharf as Shill. And speaking of counterculture films... In a few weeks, we'll see Sabrina Scharf make an appearance in another one of Jack's movies, Easy Rider, 
where she plays one of the girls on the commune. Hell's Angels on Wheels opens with a shot over the city of San Francisco, and then a shot of a calm, grassy field with flowers, and we see a close-up of a motorcycle, and we see the leg of the person getting onto it. It starts quiet, and then... There's a lot of shots of the group riding together down long stretches of road. At one point in the beginning, they join up with the Hells Angels Sacramento chapter. So we've got this enormous group of bikers all riding together. The two groups part ways, and then the San Francisco group heads on into the city. And like typical hooligans, they're terrorizing pedestrians, revving their engines, making all kinds of noise, disrupting all of society in any way they can. Poet, Jack's character, plays a gas station attendant. And he's got an attitude, you can tell. He's pretty sick of his job. We first see him pumping gas into a car, and he looks up and watches all of the commotion that the Hells Angels are causing. A few bikers from the group come up on this car, filled with young women. They start flirting back and forth. The car pulls over and two of the girls get out and they each hop onto the back of a bike. Poet sees this and you can see him smile very slightly. So Poet goes to deal with his next customer, an older man who's not belligerent, but definitely is pissed off about all the noise these bikers are causing. And he takes it out on Poet, yells at him to fill it up. Poet whose last nerve is being worked by this guy, goes to fill the guy's tank. The noise grows even louder because now the group is all congregating at this gas station. The man yells at Poet again, and Poet just goes off on this guy, grabs him by the shirt and everything. But the owner of the gas station comes over, fires Poet on the spot. So he doesn't care. He's done with that job anyway and storms out of there. As Poet is collecting his tips, Buddy, the leader of the group, even shouts over to him, You tell him! Poet doesn't acknowledge, just heads over to his bike, starts it up, and takes off down the road. Later that night, Poet is on his bike and he heads down to a bar. Shortly after he gets there, the Hells Angels all show up to the same bar, and as Poet is making his way inside, one of the Hells Angels hits his bike and breaks the headlight. Poet, not one to back down from a fight, comes over to the guy and says, Are you going to pay for that busted headlight? The guy looks him up and down, kicks over Poet's bike. So a crowd starts to gather and a fight ensues. But before the other guy is able to knock Poet out completely, he's stopped by Buddy. Buddy tells Poet that he'll get him a new headlight. But before he gets him that headlight, the group has a score to settle with a rival gang. So they all head down to another hangout. Buddy taunts the leader of the gang, and now a real fight goes down. The whole bar is involved. People are throwing chairs. They're breaking mirrors. Guys are getting knocked out right and left. Poet is there, throwing punches, and he's even being cheered on by Shill, Buddy's girlfriend. As the fight winds down, the group stays, and hey, 
they start drinking and partying. It seems like Poet is beginning to fit in with these guys. When they take off from there, Buddy tells Shill that she rides with Poet. So Shill, who is a gorgeous brunette, slips onto the back of Poet's bike and holds on. The group rides on to an amusement park. And this is just something that I thought was kind of funny. When they're all at this amusement park, Poet is walking through and he bumps into a Navy sailor. So the sailor yells at him, watch where you're going, Batman. And I was just like, he called him Batman. And then the sailor says to him, that doesn't sound like I'm sorry. And two other sailors come over. The three of them start to back in on Poet. But Poet responds by calling them all fruits in their uniforms. So this time he's outnumbered. One sailor holds him while another socks him right in the stomach. But when Buddy asks him what happened, Buddy tells him the rest of the group will take care of it. And Poet can go back to rest at Shill's place. Shill hops onto the back of Poet's bike. And when they take off, that's when the rest of the group goes to take care of those sailors. Poet and Shill get over to Shill's place. It's nothing fancy. They go in through the kitchen, into the living room, and Shill's roommate is sitting there, not saying anything. Shill flirts with Poet, has him sit down. She leans over and kisses him. So she goes over to the sofa, asks him, does he want to make love to her? He says yes. So she motions him over. They kiss again. She has him lay down on the sofa. Meanwhile, Shill's roommate is just calmly watching. Shill says, let her watch. Just let her watch. Meanwhile, the three sailors are getting off one of the amusement park rides and are immediately outnumbered by the Hell's Angels. Buddy takes a swing at the one who punched Poet, and now there's another fight. As Buddy is taking care of this one guy, the other two are getting worked on by the rest of the group. Then Buddy gets a hold of a thick chain, and he knocks the sailor out. So another guy from the group comes and checks on him, and it looks like Buddy has killed this sailor. So the group splits from there immediately over to Shill's place, where they party some more. This party scene is a fairly long scene. We see everyone, Buddy, Poet, various Hell's Angels and girls who have showed up, all smoking weed, drinking. And then at one point, there's an artist there and he's painting something onto the wall. So Buddy brings over this one girl, unzips her dress in the back. She's pretty out of it, so she doesn't protest, she doesn't say anything. Buddy pulls her dress down so she's just in her undergarments and he tells the artist, paint that. So this artist begins painting very gently onto the girl's stomach and the whole room gathers around to watch this artist paint this girl and i just thought this is so quintessentially 1960s culture the other girls at the party come over because they want to be made into art too and before you know it the whole room starts getting in on it grabbing paintbrushes painting on these girls arms and legs now, during this scene, with the girls being painted on, Poet and Shill go off alone into Shill's room. But before anything happens, 
Poet has an unexpected question. Do you care anything about yourself? Sure. I'm me, and I'm not ashamed of anything I do. buddy and you want to get even with him and you want to use me to do it <laughs> so be grateful for small favors mm, you'd like him to fight for you wouldn't you if you're afraid little boy I'm not afraid of anybody not even me Not even what I can do to you. I only know that I want you more than I ever wanted anything in my whole life. <laughs> Would you fight for me? I'd kill for you. <laughs> I liked Shill's answer to Poet's question about how she thinks of herself. To me, this established Shill as a character. She's not just some dumb girl who hangs around with outlaws and doesn't know what's going on. She is fully in control of her own life and in making her own decisions. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind through the movie. Shill is not just along for the ride. She is cognizant of everything she does and where she goes. But before long, the party is busted up by the cops. So quickly, everyone gets up. One guy sprays air freshener all over the room. Sergeant Bingham comes to the door, played by Jack Starrett. I looked up the name Jack Starrett, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that he would play a pretty memorable character in a movie less than a decade later. He would play Gabby Johnson, the incoherent town drunk, in Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles. Well... Sergeant Bingham was a much different character than old Gabby Johnson. Sergeant Bingham is very put together in his uniform, very calm and collected. He knows what this group is all about because he's dealt with them plenty of times before. He tells Buddy that a Navy sailor was killed at the amusement park, and two witnesses said the guy who did it had a beard just like Buddy's, and a jacket like the one Buddy is wearing. Buddy says, hey, we're just having a party here. A lot of guys have beards. A lot of guys have jackets like this. But before Bingham leaves, he reminds Buddy he's going to get him sooner or later. The next day, Buddy holds a meeting with other members of the group. He wants to make Poet a prospective member. So they have Poet come in, have him put on a Hell's Angels vest, Meanwhile, the group is riding on to have a wedding for one of the guys in the group named Gypsy and his girl Abigail. Shill is still riding with Poet, and they all come roaring up onto the lawn of this quiet little church out in the country. They have the reverend come out, and of course, he's just disgusted at the sight of this group and wants nothing to do with them. But they're not leaving. They came to have a wedding. The reverend won't allow all this trash as he sees it into the church. So Buddy has them take the wedding outside, 
and he instructs the whole group to line their bikes up, just like an honor guard. Now, I was really impressed with the cinematography in this shot. This looked really cool, I have to say. The bikes all lined up on either side of the front doors of the church, and the reverend standing up on the church steps right in the center, albeit reluctantly. And just in terms of the movie, it was funny to me. I just thought to myself, they really are a well-organized bunch, given the anarchy, the violence, the drinking. But they definitely have a structure, like a method to their madness. But my criticism on the movie would be that there are a lot of long shots of the group riding. They go through different landscapes and they do different things like do tricks on their bikes and they call out shit to each other. There was a lot of this where to me it felt like the movie would start to drag a bit. But I also have to say this, getting back to the 60s counterculture era, I feel like these various shots of the Hell's Angels riding, cutting up, doing their thing, wreaking havoc on small towns. That's what the audiences coming to see this movie at the time would want to see. So in watching this movie, Hell's Angels on Wheels, you have to really put yourself in a late 1960s mindset. Anti-establishment, anti-authority. That is the headspace that you need to be in. It seems like through all of this that Poet and Schill have this growing relationship. Poet tells Schill that he would marry her in a second because he thinks that that's what she wants too. But what we realize is that that's not what she wants. That was just an illusion on Poet's part. Schill wants guys to fight over her. So really, nothing about her character has changed since we first saw her at the beginning, when we saw her cheering Poet on as he was beating some dudes senseless with the rest of the Hells Angels. Like we've already established, she decides what she wants. And even though it's not an ideal life, it's not going to all change just because some new guy to the group has become smitten with her. It all comes to a head in a very climactic ending, which I think is equal parts shocking and also something that we could have seen coming. If I could say one thing about Hell's Angels on Wheels, that would be that it is 100% a movie of its time. This was the end of 1967, so this was the kind of thing that audiences were turning towards at the time. Does it stand the test of time? Well, that I can't say for sure. I do think it's dated. That's why I said you have to put yourself into the right headspace for viewing this movie. So I want you to do that. And I want you to think about how the country was evolving in the late 60s. What ideas were we as a society turning away from? And what were we getting into? Put yourself in that time when you watch Hell's Angels on Wheels. This is another one that you can find for free on Tubi. Again, that's T-U-B-I. You can also find it available for download on Amazon Prime Video, as well as DVD and Blu-ray. And there is one more project. 
that Jack had from 1967, but I'm choosing to save that one for next week. And that is The Trip, which was written by Jack and starring Peter Fonda and Bruce Dern. Instead of including The Trip in this week's episode, I wanted it to be paired up with 1968's Psych Out. Keeping on trend with 1960s counterculture, The Trip and Psych Out bring us into the LSD subculture. So those two will be the subject of next week's episode. Until then, if you enjoyed what you heard today, I can't say it enough. Please leave me a review so other fellow Jack Nicholson fans will be able to find this podcast. Be on the lookout for my blog, which will have a new entry the day after this episode is released. And I apologize, I was unable to get a new blog entry in last week, even after I told you I would have one. That will not happen again. You can count on a new blog this week. Just be sure to follow Clovercrest Media Group on Medium to see that. Follow You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. Let me know that you're out there. Be sure to visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover other great original podcasts. So until next time, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack. Jack.